Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 30, a very common, well-known section of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, and a very well-known point that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. is our first point that we made last week. We're talking about verse 30, O you of little faith. We said that's not a compliment, but I don't think I gave you the title of the message last week. If I didn't, let me give you the title this week of what we said last week. And it'll be the same thing we go through this week. The title is, With Regard to Faith Robbers. See, I believe there's a spiritual Jesse James. I believe there is a spirit of Jesse James that, you know what I mean by a thief and a robber? I I thought y'all knew who Jesse James was, but I wouldn't say Bonnie and Clyde, but just do Jesse. There is... In this world, a spirit of error. There is a working of a dark spirit, an agency of darkness, the devil. We call them demons. And there is a work amongst them to create error in God's people. So that what is given to you to walk in, it somehow doesn't work for you or it somehow doesn't compute. And you have a tendency to believe what this influence or this spirit says, and you turn away from that. And you turn away from it long enough, it's been my experience with people that it's hard to get them to turn back. So the devil knows if he can hang in there long enough with you to distort what you're hearing or convince you that you can't do that, that that's not for you, or what would happen if you did try to do that, A lot of people will hold back, wait a while, maybe I can get some strength to do this, and then 20 years later, you're still asking yourself the same thing. You've gone nowhere in 20 years, except you've had a lot of frustrations with what is taught, but what is not experienced. And I think the devil comes to rob. I think Jesus said he comes to kill and to steal and to destroy And one of the ways he does in Matthew 6, we're told, is by a thing we call worry, anxiety, take no thought. Five or six times we hear that word, take no thought. Now, it's one of the most common things that Christians do is worry. They talk about worry. They confess worry. They discuss worry. They say, I don't know what we will do if. They have no answers for the problems that the devil throws at them or what life throws at them. It's very frustrating to face something in this life and not know what to do. And the reason they don't know what to do is because they haven't paid attention. We'll get to that in a minute. There are four reasons why Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. It's never a compliment. It's always a rebuke. Oh, you have little faith. He didn't say, oh, you without faith. He said, the faith you have won't work. You have enough faith to come into the kingdom. God gave you that. That'll save you. That'll work. But if you're going to walk with God, that faith has to grow because it's a fruit. It's a fruit. It's a law. It's a gift. It's a door. It's many things. But as a fruit, it's supposed to grow like in First and Second Thessalonians chapter 1. It groweth exceedingly. It's designed to grow. You increase your faith. 
You're supposed to feed your faith. It comes from hearing the word of God, and as you hear it, you should gain more of it. You should be inspired to use your faith. Not just say, oh, I go to a church where they preach faith, but I don't have any. That won't get you through life storms. You'll just be like the world out there that you came out of. You'll worry about the same things they worry about and fret. And you get caught up in the world. Remember Matthew 13 talks about those people that get caught up in the world, all the shortages and the anxieties that come with shortages and the questions that pop in your mind of what are we going to do now and what if this doesn't work and, and oh boy, this is... The Bible says a person who hears the word and allows the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, which everybody thinks will solve all their problems, riches, and they seek after these things, the ways of the world, gaining the world, having the world, doing good in the world and having all of this kind of stuff. And the pursuit of all of that, Jesus said, it chokes the word. So that when you hear it, the effect it's supposed to have on you, the influence you're supposed to gain from it doesn't come. Because you set the word aside when it doesn't put you in a place of victory in the world with getting what you want. You know, God said this is the way, but boy, how do you do that and get this? And so you begin to worry about things. You even hear the word and you worry, well, if I did that, what would happen? What if I said I was going to trust the Lord and then this condition got worse? What am I going to do now? And so you begin to worry about it. We call it taking thought. Anxiety. It's what causes stress in the world. It's what makes drug companies rich. Is your worry, your frustrations. And you're saying, I don't know what to do. And yet you've been setting a hope you have. You should have been if you've been to church. I know it's not true with all of them, but... If you've been to a church that's even partially serious, you surely have been taught how to cope with life's problems. Not just that God said in his word this or that, but that is yours. This will work for you. You can do all things through Christ. You don't have to worry about anything. Jesus said, take no thought for your life, for your clothing, for tomorrow. He said, take no thought for tomorrow. That's what we worry about. It's tomorrow. And this worry is, creates all kinds of frustrations that just kills your faith. You see, when you talk about faith, you're talking about a firm persuasion, an inward convincing that something is true. Something is so I'm sure of it. I'm absolutely convinced. That's why there's a smile on your face when there's a problem that's not solved yet. Because you know in whom you have believed and you believe that he is able. And he said he's able to do exceeding abundant above all that you ask or think. We said that last week. And because you believe that, you refuse to worry about what if. Because that's what pe makes people worry. Well, what if? Well, what if? Well, what if? And so people worry about that. And yet God has said you don't have to worry about anything. In fact, don't worry about anything. What did he say in Philippians? We don't have to turn there. In Philippians chapter 4, he said to be careful for nothing, didn't he? Nothing is pretty broad. Wouldn't you agree? When the Bible says be careful for nothing, 
And you think of all the things that people are careful about or worry about, same word. It's a mental word. It means you're just tore up in your mind, just divided. You think of all the things that people worry about. The Bible says don't worry about anything. You know what it tells you to do? Take it to the Lord. Cast all your, your worry, all your concerns, all these, oh my, cast it on the Lord. Why are you worried about this or that? Look at creation. God says the lilies, the flowers, they don't worry. What are you worrying about? Has God lied to us? Has God told us something that's not true? Has he told you something that he will do that he won't do? Then if he said he will do it, if he will supply all of your needs, bless you going in, bless you going out, whatever you put your hand to will prosper, and 8,000 promises, then what are we worrying about? Why are we acting like what he said is not true? If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. The very foundation of your faith is that verse. If he said it, he'll do it. If he spoke it, he'll make it good. Now, what's your problem? Well, and then you go through all these kind of things, and God said, did I not say I would take care of that? You don't have a good testimony when you're full of worry and fretting and you're always complaining about this or that. God wants you to be persuaded. He wants you to have that moral conviction of God's truthfulness and God's certainty that what he said, he will do. That's the way we live. The Bible said the just shall live by faith and the devil knows if you do, he loses you. So he wants to bring you back into a place where, yeah, God said that, but what if? He wants to drag you back to where you begin to worry. Now, secondly, a second place where Jesus uses this phrase, Matthew chapter 8, where he uses this phrase about, oh, you have little faith. Never a compliment, but it has to do with worry's cousin, first cousin, fear. Fear. Verse 23. Matthew 8, verse 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. That always bothers people. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are trying to drown. We are convinced we will not survive. He said, we perish. I don't know why it didn't occur to them, well, if you perish, he's in the boat, same boat, he'll perish too. It doesn't look like he's too bothered by it. He's asleep. Water's flapping around and waving the ship and all of this, and... Jesus was a tireless worker. He was asleep. They woke him up and said, hey, we're, we're trying to perish. Join us. And Jesus awoke and he said, verse 26, why are you so fearful? Let me put my own words. He said, how many years have you been in church? How many sermons have you probably heard? How many meetings have you been to in your life where the Bible was hopefully proclaimed and it had something to do with conviction? 
I know that lots and lots of sermons today are not designed to bring conviction. It's just something else. I don't want to go into that. But how many times he might say, have you read something, heard something, and you were aware of it? Something there was special. How many times in your life? How many times have somebody told you the truth about something? And here we are. I told you we're going to go to the other side. We're going somewhere. In the meantime, I'm going to take a nap. And in the meantime, while we're in this life going from here to the other side, there's all kinds of turbulence and difficulties and problems. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have this kind of stuff in the world. You can't fall apart and have faith at the same time. You cannot have faith and at the same time ah, do that. You can't do that. Now, I said we're going over there. It doesn't look like we're going to make it right now. But I didn't tell you something that I can't do. I didn't tell you a lie. If I said we're going over there, we're going over there. This boat, this church, excuse me. Yeah, this boat full of people is going to make it to the other side. Now, why are you so fearful? Do you think I've lied to you? Do you think I told you that I would do something and then I denied you that? I'm not doing that. Oh, you of little faith? Lord, we have faith. He said, I know you have faith. I'm not saying you don't have faith. Mark's account said you don't have any faith. But he said here, why are you so fearful? Why are you afraid? Of, are you afraid of diseases? Are you afraid of the economy? Are you afraid of news reports? Are you afraid of terrorists? Are you afraid of the prowler or the terror by night or the arrow by day? What are you afraid of? Does your heavenly father give you anything to combat that with? Have you read the 91st Psalm? Have you read no evil shall befall you? How about that one? 91st Psalm. No evil shall befall you. No plague come near your dwelling. Have you read that? He would say to the people that were there. I mean, it's not for us, but that was for them. Well, let's make it for us. Have we heard that before? Did he mean it? How do you know he meant it? We're told today that, you know, God could, but he might not. How do you know you're one of the exceptions? Because that's not what the Bible says. That's what man says to justify his failure and his inability to use his faith. He says that to justify himself because he cannot admit that he failed. One of the hardest things for anybody in this room to do is to admit that you failed especially in some area you think you're pretty good at. It's hard for us to admit that we were wrong, that we messed up or failed or I dropped the ball. It's hard to admit it. We don't want anybody to say that. That offends us. And yet God said, why are you so fearful? What are you afraid of? Did I not tell my angels that concerning you that they would keep you in all of your ways? Did I not tell you, did not the psalmist say in Psalm 34 and verse 4, he said, I sought the Lord. I needed to have some answers. I sought the Lord and he heard me. And what did he do when he heard me? He delivered me from all my fears. Is that possible in the year 2013? Is it possible today that the word of God could have the same effect today as it had then?
Can it really do what he said it would do? Deliver us, not the world, they can't, but deliver us from all the things that terrorize people, all the things that make our faith not work. You can't have faith at the same time be tore up and terrorized by some situation. I didn't say it wasn't serious. Every situation is serious. Even lying symptoms are serious because you got to fight. But we're given too many promises in the Bible, too many good instructions come from the scripture that we're not supposed to be afraid. Well, what about natural fears? There's three forms of fear to me. There's a fear that is normal. It's probably good fear because it's where we get caution from. We know better than to stick our finger in an electrical outlet, don't we? If you're not afraid of it, put it in there at once. If you put it in there again, there's something wrong with you. But we teach our kids about playing in the street. We teach our kids they're climbing trees or doing things that we don't want them to get hurt. We want them to be cautious. Well, there's nothing really wrong with that because it teaches us, well, how to be careful. Or playing with fire, matches, don't play with matches, and so forth. Then there's a fear that's a phobia, a fear that controls you, a fear that makes you cower, a fear that makes you draw back, a fear that tells you that it'll probably fail, and if it fails, you'll fail, and you know, you don't want anybody to watch you fail, so it's a fear. People have a fear of diseases. There are people who wash their hands all day long because of a fear of germs. And there's many kinds and names for many phobias. You know, people are claustrophobia, afraid of being smothered and in a tight place and other things. Those are not good things. We should not be ruled by that. Yet we probably all have experienced some kind of phobia in our life. You know, a fear of dogs, fear of heights, a fear of maybe riding in an airplane or riding in a train or something. It's just a dread. It's a dread that people have. You can't have faith and have that kind of dread. And the devil knows that. The faith you're supposed to have, the faith that he dreads, the faith that resists him and makes him flee, you don't have if he can make you afraid to use it. Tell you it won't work. You'll fail for sure. I mean, how many people have you known that walked this way or tried this or tried that? How many of them failed? Doesn't the Bible say the fear of man brings a snare? We're so afraid of people. That is, we're afraid of what people think. I learned many years ago, it took me a while to learn it. After a while, I learned this, that you can't do what I'm doing and be afraid of people. Maybe there was a time early on when you were uncertain about a lot of things and didn't know how to come in and go out yet. But it didn't take you long. It didn't take me long, especially when I became a pastor. Something I swore I'd never do. But it didn't take me long to realize that you can't do this and let people control you and you can't be afraid of what they think. You can't be afraid if they come or if they go. Your command is to preach the gospel and let God take care of the people. Now, it took a while because you do lose a few. You gain some, you lose some, but you can't play that game. It's a kind of a fear that inhabits a lot of ministries. 
You're afraid that people will take you wrong. You're afraid that people will leave. You're afraid that you might not be. You're afraid, you're afraid, you're afraid. You can't have that. You have to have regard and respect, of course. You have to have something inside of you that wants to serve God. You fear the Lord. Jesus said, don't fear him that can take your life, you know, destroy your life in this world, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The final judge of all the earth. That's who you should fear. Because that's the third fear. A fear of God. That's the healthiest, greatest fear a man can have. Because you see, it's a word that implies not only reverence and high regard for God to honor him, but at the same time, you know that God is a consuming fire and you don't want to cross him. I've said before many times in my life, my mother loved me more than anybody I can think of. I didn't wake up in the morning scared of my mother. My mother wasn't bad to me. Not all the time. But when she made rules, do this, don't do this. Be quiet, don't say that anymore. And, you know, a kid just loves to see how far he can go. And so you push a little bit too much, and then she uses, I guess it's a rod. I got it off the maple tree out in the front yard, but I, I think it was it's called a switch. And she'd wear me out with that thing. And I learned right away that, you know, my mother loves me. There's no hand on my head feels better when I don't feel good than my mother's hand. But on the other hand, that hand sometimes inflicts pain. Because there's rules. You got to obey what was said. Just like the government. The government's not for us to fear. But you, if you're going to be a lawbreaker in Romans 13, then you should fear them. You should be afraid. But if you have the fear of God in your heart, it's the most basic, foundational, fundamental principle that will make your life work right is the fear of God. Your attitude about God is first. Let me show you a verse of Scripture. Ecclesiastes, in the middle, with the clean, clean pages of your Bible. Ecclesiastes 12. Look at the next to last verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Because you see, the purpose of the fear of God is to make you holy. Something in you says, don't cross God. God meant what God said. God must watch over his word to perform it. Don't take God for granted. Don't assume that you're too good to go to hell and therefore you're all right. Because most people do that. Well, I'm not bad enough to go there. I may not be a good, you know, perfect person, but I'm not that bad. And so they disregard God with their whole life. They disregard him. They hear his word and let it slide. They don't pay attention. They're not interested. They miss when they want to because God has no influence in their life, period. In other words, they have no fear of God. There's no reverence. Their life is not about God. It's about themselves and what God can help make that better. That's what their life's about. But he said, with regard to the fear of God, in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, he said, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And you know what he says? This is what it comes down to. Fear God and what? But you won't keep his commandments if you're afraid. If you're afraid, they won't work. 
If you're afraid the scripture you've heard won't work for you, you won't keep his commandments. You'll wonder about his commandments. You won't kick it out of your mind. It'll always be there to haunt you. And you might say, well, I haven't forgotten his word is still in there, but you're not trusting it because of fear. We're afraid it might not work. And because of that kind of a fear, we, we don't do well. It just doesn't work well for us. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith. You know, the Bible says what time I am afraid, I will trust the Lord, the psalmist did. Have you ever driven on a really icy road in the winter? Oh, I'm not afraid. Don't buy. Whoa, well, just put the hammer down and see how fast it'll go then. No, you're very cautious because wisdom would dictate that. A wise, discerning person knows better than to act like a fool when, well, the law of slick roads will take over. So you're careful. You're cautious, especially when you've got passengers. But you're not afraid to get out there and go if you have to. If I don't have to go, I'm going to stay in the house. In my life, I'm just different. It's just the way it worked for me. I've had to drive many, 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 many thousand miles at night in the dark on bad roads and a lot of snow. It used to be I'd go to Indianapolis every Wednesday night to have a Bible study up there. And it seems that every Wednesday it snowed. It snowed all the time. I remember I got to the meeting one year. It was really deep. We got up there and looked out the window, and after we were there getting ready to preach to the, the 10 or so that came, there used to be a lot of people, and that night there was about 10 or 12. I watched look out the window. It was just snow big flakes that kept falling. We got home early the next morning. It took us a long time, I think five or six hours, to go from Indianapolis down to Charlestown where I lived. But we made it. We did a little slipping and a little sliding and prayed a lot. But we made it. I remember the next week, a lady came to the meeting. It was not a snowy night. She said, were you here last week? I said, yes, ma'am. Oh, how'd you get here? Well, I live five blocks from here. I couldn't get here. I said, well, I drove. <laughs> See, did I want to drive? <laughs> I was kept hoping the phone would ring and somebody would say, don't come. Oh, Okay. I did call. Should I come? How's the weather? Oh, they're getting around up here. Okay. <laughs> I remember one night we took off up through there, and it was really bad. I got as far as Seymour, and the roads were closed. I got to get to a meeting. Well, not on this road, you're not. So we drove over, and I think it was Highway 15, got over there, and it was closed off. And I couldn't make it at all. I tried. It wasn't my fault that night. I was a victim. But I couldn't get there. <laughs> I tried. All I'm saying is, while I did not enjoy driving that way, did not look forward to it, I was not afraid if I had to, to go. And if I didn't make it, then I didn't. If I did, then I did. But I cast all that concern and just do what I could do, this best ability that I have to do it. You can't do well in fear. Fear is a terrible thing. But... Let me show you how to combat fear. You got a Bible? Amen. Romans 8. Would you turn to Romans 8 for a moment? 
I'll ask you before we read Romans 8 and verse 31, do you suppose that the 31st verse is true? If God be for us, who can be against us? Is that true? I'm asking you all in this room. Is it true that God is for you? If he is for you, who can be against you? Now, remember what I just said about God being for you when we get to the next point. Because in the last part of this chapter, in verse 35 through 39... The question is, who shall separate you from the love of God and who shall separate you from this and this? Shall famine, nakedness, peril, distress, persecution? He said, and all these things were more than conquerors through Christ. He ends the verse 39, neither height nor depth nor any such thing shall separate you from the love of God. Well, what are you afraid of then? What are you afraid of? You fear for your life? Your life doesn't belong to you. You were bought with a price, were you not? Do you belong to God? Do you belong to him? If he bought you, if you're his purchased possession, does he own you? Does he have a right to you? Well, you don't have a right to be afraid that he might not do with his property what he said he would do. If he said he would, he would. If he said he will, he will. God is God. Turn to Psalm 112. You're going to like this. Psalms 112, talking about, well, in this case, fear of God. This is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. The promises are extravagant. This is a tennis shoe psalm. It's a tennis shoe psalm. It means you want to put your tennis shoes on when you read it, so you might want to take off running. Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that is afraid of the devil. Praise you the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, that greatly delights in his commandments. Then he mentions all these things that you benefit from because you fear the Lord. Things you ought to like. For example, he said, your seed will be mighty. Our new little member of the church, he'll be mighty. If his mom and dad fear the Lord, what did this say? The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. That means his favor with God continues. There will arise light and darkness, verse 4. This kind of man is gracious. He's full of compassion and righteous. He shows favor. He lends. God will guide all of his affairs with discretion. You know why? Because he chose to reverence God. His faith will work. And the next verse tells us what he does with fear. He shall not be afraid. Verse 7, he shall not be afraid. He shall not be afraid of what? Evil tidings, evil announcements, news, telephone, otherwise. He shall not be afraid. He shall not be afraid. Why? What has come into his life that has replaced his fears? Read it, verse 7. Trusting 
in the Lord. That's what you do when you fear God, when God is the big deal in your life all the time. And the normal response to God being who he is, is to trust him. Look who he is. Look what he does. Look what he said. Look what he can do. Why wouldn't I trust him? And in the 91st Psalm, again, there is an arrow that flies by day. There is a stalker by night. There are all these things that are designed by the devil to make you afraid so you won't be able to use your faith. Just draw back. I'm not going to step out and let the Lord use me. What if I fail? It's a big deal. Matthew 14, number three, is doubt. Doubt, fear, and worry. They're the hooligans that rob faith constantly. My fourth point, the last point will probably, at least to me, is, is as bad as the first three. But Matthew chapter 14 Verse 22. All of you know this story very well. It's again about water and it's about a boat. And Jesus has just preached, sent his followers to the other side, sent them away, told his disciples to get into a boat, go to the other side. And as they go to the other side, the storm begins to rage as it would. Again, it's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the church when Jesus says to the church, I am going to go, but I shall return, didn't he? And in the meantime, you set your course across the Sea of Galilee. You're going across here. It's about six to seven miles one way across there, the way that they were going. He said, I want you to set your course across there. And here's what happened in verse 24. Now the ship, was in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind, the world's ways was contrary. It's always been like that. It will never change. Now, listen. Think of this. In the midst of the sea means halfway, wouldn't it? Midst, middle, halfway. They've been rowing for quite a while. He comes about six hours later. They've been rowing for six hours. They've gone three miles. One of your children could get in a canoe and go that far in just a few minutes. On a still lake, you could go that far in just a few minutes. Now, here's grown men in a boat that have been rowing for a long time. They've gone three miles. By this time, they're tense. They're aggravated. They're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. It's dark. It's the darkest hour of the night. They hear the thunder and they see the waves boisterous. The wind is blowing and the boat is this way and that way. And a lot of energy is trying to keep the boat straight. And the preachers in the boat are so many different opinions that one rows this way and one rows another way. One has a big paddle. One has a little paddle. If you had any faith, you wouldn't need a paddle. And you got that in there too, see. So this boat's not really going anywhere. It's up and it's down. It's sideways. The people in the boat are tense. They don't know what to do either. They're arguing. They're full of fear and all these other things. And the Bible says, verse 
25, the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went into them walking on the sea. He was walking on their problem. Isn't the sea what they were scared of? And what were they scared of? Of dying. And in the fourth watch of the night, that's about six to seven hours later, maybe nine. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. It doesn't tell us, describe the mechanics of walking on the water. We just know that in this, there's a law in this world that governs that, that water can't hold you up unless you're in some kind of a boat or contraption that will hold you up. But it didn't bother him. He made water, so he was walking on it. He walked across there, and when the disciples saw him, this end time came when the disciples saw him, man, they were exuberant. They threw their paddles away and said, whoo, here he is. Now they all jumped out of the boat and started dancing on the water. Power, glory, might. But it says, my Bible, if your Bible said that, you got one of them new ones. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. They saw the wind boisterous. They were afraid. You would have been afraid too. I would have been afraid, I'm sure. But he didn't accept that from either one of us. Logical fear is unacceptable. They were worrying about dying. They were afraid everything was upside down. It was unacceptable. In verse 7, he said, be of good cheer. It is I, be not afraid. And Peter, one of the few in that boat that believed God, he said, if that's really you out there, because there's a lot of, you know, deception today, Lord, if that's really you, command me to get out of the water and walk. Walk to you. You know what? The other guys in the boat said, don't do that. Look. Look. Splash in the water. It won't work. You can't do that. That's not God. That's, that's an end time deception. Don't get out there and follow that. And Peter said, you know, I've been in this boat with you all for a long time. We've been rowing for a long time. We ain't gone anywhere. I'm getting out of this thing. If I sink, I sink. If I die, I die. But I'm not sitting in a sinking ship all my life. So he got out and left that thing and began to walk on the water. But Peter got out of the boat, verse 29. He walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That word for doubt is, is a word which means he's pulled two ways. And what the Lord said pulled him out of the boat. And then when he got on the water, he began to see the effect of the water and the wind and the waves. Because the devil's there to remind you that, you know, this is not possible. You can't do this. This is way over your head. Oh, look here. Oh, here comes a wave. And he began to be pulled two ways. But the effect and his dread of the wind and the waves overruled his faith. And when that happens, even though you're started well and you've made some distance in your faith walk, if you give up, you'll sink. He didn't say, oh, ye of no faith. He said, the faith you have is little. It was working. Why did you doubt 
How many steps on the water do you have to take to be convinced that you're doing the same thing Jesus is doing? The power he had, you've got. The work he's doing, you're doing. How long do you have to live this way to be convinced of that, Peter? You're doing what I'm doing. Why did you doubt? Yes, you're being tempted. Of course you're being tempted. We all are being tempted. We're all pulled this way and pulled that way. We all want to doubt. It's common, it's natural. Worry and fear and doubt are the most common robbers of people's faith. It's probably why most people have no faith and argue against it. Oh, I know somebody that tried that once, and I know somebody that's going to, I heard this one time, I knew a person. All that negative stuff is designed to talk you out of your faith. Stay in the boat. Do the best you can with the waves of the sea. Because let me tell you something, when Jesus got into the boat eventually, it was immediately on the other shore. They went three miles in an instant. When he got into the boat, it was on the other shore. John's gospel says so. Immediately. That's the difference between man and God. And again, there's a picture there of the end time, the way things, I think. There's a little hint, a picture there of what's going to happen in the last days. Why did you doubt? You know what doubt is? Doubt is different, a little bit different from worry and fear, though they're kin. Doubt is when you know what God said, but you're not willing to trust it. He certainly could. I'm not denying that. I have faith that God is able. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. All of that. I'm just not convinced. That's where we go back to faith definition. I'm just not convinced that this is going to work for me. Is it possible to be in doubt and unbelief and yet enjoy the favor of God in a church? I read this the other day. Put your finger right there. We're going to come back. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. See, Deuteronomy is a rehashing of the law. It's giving them the history of how they got to the promised land. And he reminds them in chapter 1 about the rebellion. Verse 26, you've rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. In verse 27, you murmured in your tents and you said the Lord hates us. And verse 28, where shall we go? Our brethren have discouraged our heart when they came back from the report of the promised land and how they just wanted to go back. And they, they believe what man said instead of what God said. That's what doubt is. It's believing what man said instead of what God said. You, you put a question mark where God puts a period. Well, I don't know about that. How do you know he will? He said he would, yeah, but... And you doubt. It's probably the easiest thing for people to do is doubt. Thomas said, I'll believe it if I what? Well, that's crazy. You wouldn't believe it if you saw it. You, you know it then. You have to believe what you don't see. You have to believe what you can't see. Your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you know? I have to believe that. I haven't seen it. But he tells them there in that first chapter about this was a problem that you had. And then in chapter 2, and look at verse 14. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we came over the brook Zered 
was 38 years until all the generation of men of war were wasted out from among the host as the Lord swore unto them. Did the Lord swear that everybody 20 and over would not make it to the promised land? All right, they're all dying. They're all dying. Even those that were 20 are just reaching 60 and they're dying. That's what the Psalm 90 was about. It said the days of a man's life are 70 years. It was a complaint. Lord, they're only living 70 years. I mean, Moses was that older now when he started. He said, the people are dying young. You know why they're dying young? Because they rebelled against God. They doubted and disregarded what he said. In verse 15, for indeed the hand of the Lord was what? Let me ask you a question. We're talking about doubt. This is more common than anybody will admit. How many people are in the presence of God's people and the hand of the Lord is against them? Doesn't look like it, does it? They had manna. They had quail. They had water. They had the benefit of the cloud. They had the benefit of the fire by night. Souls on their shoes didn't wear out. There wasn't a feeble one amongst them, but the hand of the Lord was against them. Forty years. Forty years the hand of the Lord was against them. They were the, probably the ones that murmured and complained. God didn't just destroy them. They stuck around. It just began to die off. They weren't living very long. Their children were now becoming, some of them, 40 years old, 30, 40, 20, 30, 40. The ones that were going to go into promised land were all young people. Did you know that? Except for Caleb and Joshua, every one of them was 40 and under. So you young folks got some hope here, see. They didn't do the doubting. The ones who should have taught them better did the doubting. And the hand of the Lord was against them for 40 years. Against them. They went out and got their man and everything else and looked like, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. The Lord's against you. Oh, no, look how blessed. The Lord is against you. You know why? It's a matter of faith. Is a matter of faith. They would not believe the report that God gave them. They believe the report of a man, and they still do today. If a doctor told you to take off your clothes, you'll take them off. If somebody else told you to do that, they'd lock them up forever. It's just amazing how much we picked out people that will believe whatever they say, and yet with regard to God, no, no. That's the problem with the church, with people in the church. We know what God said. You know what he said. You've been taught long enough. The question comes down to when those moments come, will you trust him? And you know what? Even though he said to Peter, why did you doubt? He didn't discard him, did he? Just like that man said, Lord, help my unbelief. God's much more compassionate. If he started to work in you and you're not doing so well, he's not done with you. He's going to fix things that aren't right with you. He's going to make you a faith walker, a faith talker. He's going to make you the way you should be. You're struggling. Say, ah, he's going to make it right because he's God and he can. He has all the resources of heaven 
to do with whatever he wants to do to make things the way he said it's going to be. And if we're going to be a glorious church, you can be sure that the glorious working of God will come about and he will bring forth a righteous church. Glorious without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. You. Don't sit there and go, well, I ain't sure about that. I doubt that. He said he's going to. Or maybe... We don't want to say the hand of the Lord is against you and it'll never work for you because it can work for you. Let's just remember that those things were written a long time ago were written for our learning. Let's go back to Matthew 14. See, the real damage done by doubt, the eternal damage done by doubt is to keep you out of heaven. Turn to James 1. Let me read it instead of trying to explain it. James chapter 1. Oh, you, he said, of little faith. Don't let that be us. James chapter 1. If any of you lacks wisdom, call your neighbor. Verse 5. Call your neighbor on the cell phone. Ask him what you ought to do. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But, verse 6, but there's only one way to ask God and get results. Only one way. Let him ask in faith without, and there's one thing that keeps faith from working specifically, and it's wavering. Wavering is a word for doubt. It's a compound word. It has a to and to judge. It's looking at things two ways. It's judging this and judging that and never really knowing which one is right. That's the problem with doubt. We know what God said, but we know what the symptoms are saying. We know what God said. We know what the economy is saying. We know what God said. We know what our checkbook says. We know what God says. We know what. We know what. And the problem is we don't know which one to choose. What should we do? Well, you should choose God. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your steps. In James 1, let him ask in faith without doubting. Because here's what happens if you doubt. This is the line that God has drawn. He that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. It's this way, and it's that way. It's never here all the time. It's never there all the time. It does believe, but then it doesn't believe. It knows he could, but we're not sure he will. It's just this wavering back and forth. Doubt. It's a word for doubt. It's translated stagger not. You remember the word about Abraham, staggered not? It's translated stagger in Romans 4.20. So the man he does that, he said in verse 7, for let not that man think what? See, that's a hard verse. I think it's hard. I don't think it's hard because of the grammar. I just think it's hard because for people to read that, it exacts from you your attention. You better pay attention to that. In verse 7, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. How big is anything? How broad is anything? 
You mean everything is faith-based if you're going to receive it from God? Make it that way. Don't, don't back off. Don't cower. Yeah, it's too hard. Just make it that way. Be hard on yourself. Hold me to that, Lord. Let the plumb line fall right in the middle of my life. Let your word be like that. Show me what to measure up to. Show me. And he said, let not that man think he shall receive anything from the Lord. Why? Why would you say that, Lord? What does the Lord say? There's a trait there that should not be evident in any of us, a trait that displeases God and nullifies your faith. It says this, for he is double-minded. For he is a double-minded man. He has two minds. He has a mind for the world and a mind for the Lord. He's aware of both ways, but he doesn't know which one to pick. He doesn't know. He doubts. And the Bible says that man, in all of his ways, is unstable. You can never count on this guy to always choose God. Sometimes he does, and it's really good. Praise the Lord. That was, but then the next time, he falls apart. Unstable. And therefore, he receives nothing from the Lord. The hand of the Lord is not on him for good. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to say that, but it's true anyway. See, this is what God said. Let him ask in faith without doubting. Your faith is wonderful. See, doubting is like when you're thrown back and forth and you're never really sure you can't make a decision because you can't make up your mind. You see things two ways. Jesus said, let your eye be single. See what God says. Rebuke the other part. And things will work well for you. And so he said, a man who is double-minded, has two souls, have a hard time. A delay in the answer to your prayer, symptoms persisting. What are you going to do? It doesn't look like it's working. You're going to doubt? God said it would work. It doesn't look like it's going to work. How many years has it been? I don't know. The symptoms haven't gone away since you got prayed for. How do you know it's going? I don't know. If it's going. So you start doubting. Abraham, you're going to be the father of a child from that old lady. With regard to his body, he did not doubt. But he was strong in faith. He said, then it shall be, even as the Lord has told me. This is the way we have to be. We have to say, look, God said, I can't understand all this. Some of these things happening in the world that are going on now, I may not understand all that, but I can't give in to that. I have to know in whom I have believed. I have to trust him with my heart. And if I perish, I perish. If I succeed, I succeed. But I must trust the Lord. I'm not at liberty to doubt or to be afraid or fearful. Because you see, one of these things that rules out everything is the last point. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, we'll finish. The fourth point in Matthew chapter 16 is probably as common, if not more common, than the traits we've already talked about. Worry, fear, and doubt. And what is it? Well, let's look in verse 6. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. His disciples had gone to the other side, and they had forgotten to take bread. So he said to them, beware and Take heed of the eleven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Well, they didn't know exactly what that meant. Like we probably wouldn't know. But they got together and said, what do you mean by that? The leaven of the Pharisee, well, I guess bread. Leaven, you know, yeast, bread. Uh, do we have any bread? No, uh, Nathaniel was supposed to bring bread. Nathaniel, you're the bread man. You got any bread? He said, no, I thought you all were going to bring it. So they were discussing about taking bread. In verse 8, when Jesus knew they were reasoning among themselves because they had no bread, he said to them, O legal pistos, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you brought no bread? Was this a rebuke? Do you not remember the 5,000 and the 4,000 and how many baskets full we had left over. Y'all remember that? Remember when we set them down on the hillside and we gave them a little happy meal and, and prayed over it? And everybody there had all they wanted to eat and we gathered fragments, had 12 basketfuls left over? Don't you remember that? See, forgetfulness is our last point. You forget the things you've heard. You forget what God has said. You forget the point of the stories that are in the Bible. And you don't remember that those things are for your learning. If God did it once, he'll do it again. If he did it for them, he'll do it for you. He said, do you not remember? In Mark's 8, verse 8, he said, do you not remember? And he goes on to say here about those who forget and don't pay attention. Verse 11, how is it that you do not understand that I spoke not unto you concerning bread, but that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Then they understood what he was talking about. Well, listen what Mark adds to this. Listen to this. Let me read it. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 17 and 18, he said, And when Jesus knew it, he said unto them, Why reason ye because you have no bread? Perceive ye not neither understand, have ye your heart yet hardened? See, you hide the word in your heart. Are you resisting what you've heard? Are you just taking it for granted? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are you doing that? I mean, I fed a bunch of them once. I fed them again. There's supposed to be some impact of that story and that experience on all of my followers. That's what God can do. Why wouldn't he do it for us? He did it once. Will he not do it again? He said to them, why are you arguing about bread? Why are you concerned about bread? Oh, you have little faith. Don't you remember what I've already done? I mean, what I've already said. Jesus said, having eyes to see, see you not. And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Do you not remember? You see, remembrance is when you keep and you hide in your heart what God has said to you. For some of us, it was necessary for me to take notes because there were so many different things to remember. I remember things in the night. I had the other night, and I can rebuke myself publicly right now for not getting out of a, a warm bed and writing down something that the Lord showed me for a point for a sermon. I said, okay, I'll get that in the name of Jesus. I'll get that in the morning. I'll get that in the morning. I may get it back. But it was a good point. You see, you can forget whatever you're not interested in. I graduated from college 
I've got a Bachelor of Arts degree in a university. You're welcome. What all did I learn? I have no idea. I did not go to college to learn anything. I went to college to play basketball. After I'd played basketball for two years, I began to hate basketball. But I got a free ride. I didn't like my classes. I didn't like school. I don't think I liked myself. I just went to school. Went through the motions. I mean, what kind of methods and materials in physical education or anthropology, the history of the world from a foreigner who couldn't speak good English. I'm, I'm sad to say as bad as I was, we used to take turns missing class because he'd call the roll, we'd have somebody answer for us. Hamilton, here. And then it's my turn to leave class, he'd say, whoever, here. He never did look up, see who said that. We just answered wrong. Because if you miss class, you'd get some kind of deduction. So we'd take turns missing class and have somebody. I didn't care anything about that class. Just sit next to somebody smart and you can make the course. <laughs> I despise some things I did. I do. I despise them. And that's just the smooth stuff. I'm telling you that Forgetting is easy when you're not interested. Things I was interested in, I could read about how to take a gun apart or how to do this or something like that, and I could re still remember. I can remember the details today. But we can all remember details. Look how many phone numbers you can remember or used to be able to remember. Now you hit a button, you just got to know what number they are. Look at how many things you have to memorize. From phone numbers to passwords to IDs to buttons, you have to, to you know, do this or do that. We all have good memories. Everybody in here does. It's just that the devil gives you something else to put emphasis on instead of the word of God. I've had people say to me all my life, well, I can't remember the word. You can remember everything else. How many birth dates can you remember? Oh, I can remember all of them. And you can't remember the Bible? It's because you don't want to. Ooh, that's hard. No, it wasn't. It's true. You don't want to remember it. You want to hear it. You just don't want to retain it. If you don't like to retain God in your knowledge and you've given God nothing as a weapon in your warfare to use against the devil. Doesn't the Bible say the weapons of our warfare are mighty? Isn't that the sword of the spirit? If we don't hide that word in our heart, what does the Spirit of God bring forth for us to use as a weapon if we can't remember it? I mean, it's important if you're going to be a soldier of the cross, if you're going to be a warrior, if you're going to fight the good fight of faith, the only weapon you've got is the word of God. The only defense you have is faith. You better major on those things because there's no end to the warfare you're going to have in this life. It never stops. It continues all the days of your life. And you don't please God by losing. You don't please God by being defeated. You please God by overcoming. Amen. That's what God wants. So when it comes to remembrance, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
He forgives you of all your iniquities. Same verse, heals all your diseases. Redeems your life from destruction. Crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Satisfies your mouth with good things and renews your youth like the eagles. Why wouldn't you memorize that? Why wouldn't you? That's life. That's what the devil hates is those words. Jesus said it is written and then he quoted it. And the devil could do nothing with it. That's why your remembrance is, is important. Look at Psalm 106, verse 12. Then believe they his words, they sang his praise. That's good, isn't it? Agree with me that to hear his words and to sing his praise is good. The next part's not good. Same people. They soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel in verse 15. And as a result, God sent leanness into their souls. Life was a continuous struggle. No known solutions they were sure of. It was just a constant struggle. Why? Because they forgot his words. That's why. They forgot what he said. In closing, go to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2. These are instructions again. You're going into the land of promise. Now here's some instructions. You shall remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. We call these trials. And he humbled you and allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know. Neither did their fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God doth man live. Deuteronomy 8 verse 10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good in which he has given you. Verse 11. Beware. Beware that you forget not the Lord your God in keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you this day. Verse 14, then your heart will be lifted up. If you think you've made it this far on your own, then your heart will be lifted up, and you will forget the Lord, which brought you out of bondage. Don't forget. Let's close with another verse. In Deuteronomy, I told you we wouldn't leave there. Go to chapter 4. Let's make this our final verse. No more. Let's make this our final verse. Seven through nine. Deuteronomy four. For Shelbyville Christian Assembly. For those who are watching, those who listen. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God to be near unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we may call upon him? What nation is there that hath statutes and judgments and so righteous as all your law, which I set before you this day? What nation, what group of people on the earth has the word that you've been given? That's what he's saying. 
Who has what you've been given? It's what God said. Verse 9, only take heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life, but teach them unto your sons and to thy son's sons. That's my grandchildren. He ends at verse 10, that they may teach them to their children. Teach what? The word of God. Make them keep hearing it. Hey, preacher, keep preaching it. Keep saying it because eventually they'll get it. To all beef, pastels, sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles on a sesame seed. But remember that? You don't remember that if you're under 30 because they don't do that anymore. But that used to be the Big Mac thing. See, if you ate those things, you remembered that. You just remember it. Somebody said, well, how does you quote the Bible? Because I want to. I think it's important to me. Not only to quote the Bible, but quote things about the Bible. Quote the books of the Bible. Who were the apostles? I like to quote the apostles. The tribes of Israel, who were the tribes? I like to remember things like that, and I can. I just like to be in accord with the Bible and to acquaint myself with it. Now, let me ask you all something. Is God for you or against you? Then in what way, if God is for you, do you respond to him in kindness and thanksgiving? There's only one way to believe. I resign myself to any fear and doubt and frustrations and and worries. I choose to enlarge my mind and let your word dwell there to hide your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And I choose not to fall apart. And I choose to trust you and your provisions for my life that I may make it through this life and please you with every step. In Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask your blessing upon what we've heard as well as how we have heard it. I pray that your favor and your grace will be with us individually, with each one of us. That as we walk in the light that you're giving us, that we will enjoy the benefits and the fruits of it. I ask you to change things for us, Lord, that we may not only be what you want, but begin to enjoy what you've given us. You've said you have given us richly all things to enjoy. I pray for this congregation that they may, that you will bless everybody here. Bless us all, not only with, with our abundance, but with a holy nature. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.